Hello and welcome to episode 12 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. On our last episode, we met Paul, my former rival and new best friend. Socially, Paul and I almost immediately jettisoned the other members of our misfit writer's block group and soon became an inseparable duo. Paul taught me all about the four elements of hip-hop and about rap music pioneers like Africa Bambata and Cool Herc. I didn't enjoy all of the old-school rap and electro music that Paul played me, and I suspected neither did Paul. But educating ourselves on the history of the art form, we agreed, was important. We religiously watched the video shows Pump It Up, Video Music Box, and Rap City, and read magazines like Rap Pages and The Source. We listened devotedly to the radio shows hosted by Cool DJ Red Alert, Stretch Armstrong and Bobito, Funkmaster Flex, and the Underground Railroad's Jay Smooth. Paul taught me how to make pause tapes, crude homemade mixes made by dubbing songs from one cassette onto another, carefully timing the cuts using the pause button to create a seamless mix that flowed like a DJ set. Inevitably, we decided to form a rap group, using my trusty karaoke machine as our home studio. We called the group Rebellious Knowledge. I found that writing rap verses came fairly easily to me, and I soon began deciphering the music's tricks and codes. The formula, which I gleaned from listening to rappers I admired, was to use mundane lines to set up what we'll refer to as the emphasis lines. This is an old trick, and shrewd observers will notice that even seasoned freestyle rappers will often vary these filler lyrics enough that you won't notice the way they merely serve to build expectation. Here's an example. Any punk that steps to me puts his life in jeopardy. I shot the sheriff then, I pistol whipped his deputy. Think of the first and the third lines as the abbot, and the second and fourth lines as the costello. The setup line creates an expectation for the punchline to follow. Very rarely will you hear a freestyle rapper from this classic period follow up a clever first line with a weak second one. If you listen, you'll notice it is almost always the reverse. Any songwriter in any genre can learn a lot about songwriting by listening to Big L, Master Ace, Akinelli, and Mad Skills. Masters of simile and metaphor, all of them. Many years later, when promoting my own albums, interviewers would occasionally ask me about my earliest influences as a lyricist, and they would always look surprised when I cited Rakim before Bob Dylan. I'd compare the act of writing a rap verse, or of writing anything really, to the feeling of being on a beach and looking for an appropriately flat skipping rock to pitch into the water. You know, at first you don't see any rocks appropriate for skipping. Then you find one, and then another. Then you suddenly see so many that you can fill your hands and both pockets of your swimming trunks with perfectly flat skipping rocks without having to move an inch from where you're standing. Words and ideas begin to flow faster than you can capture them on the page, but starting is the hardest part. Anyway, Paul already had a rap moniker, words with a Z. So tasked with creating for myself a nom de plume I felt would complement his, I dubbed myself Wits, also with a Z. Paul thought this was stupid, but I didn't care, even though he was right. As individual rappers, Paul and I were already forming our respective strengths and weaknesses, 
and our styles complemented each other in the tradition of great hip-hop groups we idolized. As lyricists, we were equals. Lyric writing was the aspect of the music we privileged above all else, so we constantly fine-tuned and workshopped our verses. I had the better flow. It came easily to me. Paul was the concept guy, the visionary, the idea man. On the mic, he could be inscrutable, artsy, and unyielding, while I was often derivative, risk-averse, and at times blandly traditional. For all you rap nerds, in hip-hop terms, Paul was like the Sadat X to my Lord Jamar, the Andre 3000 to my big boy. I would say something like, let's call the song Shit Is Real. Paul would say, let's call it Red Tape and change some of the lyrics to make it more about corrupt government bureaucracy, and then later we can color all of the cassettes red. Paul also vetoed any idea he thought was trite and unoriginal, like posing with fake guns or donning raiders or king's apparel for our group photos. Using the trusty Singalodian karaoke machine, we crafted shouty hooks and choruses and inserted ad-libs via the practice of overdubbing. The beats were provided by the B-sides of the various cassette singles, known then as ca-singles, and 12 inches in our collection. If a rap group's single featured an instrumental version, and it could be had for $3 or less, we bought it, even if we didn't especially like the song itself. It was always a bummer when we'd bring home a new tape, only to discover that the instrumental track retained the original song's chorus. Then you'd have to rhyme a whole verse over someone else's rowdy chorus, which was difficult. The rare dedicated instrumental tracks on full-length rap albums were also repurposed. Public Enemies, Leave This Off Your Fucking Charts, DJ Quick's Quick's Groove, and Stetsasonic's Hip Hop Band were beats we rhymed over a lot. I actually can't even hear those songs today without hearing us rap over them. Lacking a microphone stand, we'd balanced the karaoke microphone inside one of our sneakers so it stood somewhat upright. This allowed us to record our verses and ad-libs simultaneously if we were feeling confident enough. Rebellious Knowledge was more fantasy camp than actual group, a well-organized and meticulously plotted delusion. Paul and I would record our various tracks on cassette, and for most of our first year as a duo, it hadn't occurred to either of us to make more than one copy. The possibility that anyone else would want to listen to our music was a thought so abstract it was never even discussed but we loved listening back and giving each other notes on our respective verses and rhymes. Notes that weren't always constructive and often led to scuffles. We spoke of rebellious knowledge as if it were a real entity, as if there were expectations on us to keep it real and not let our fans down. We didn't have any fans. To this day, I can recall the names of every candidate in the 1992 presidential race because of the rebellious knowledge song, Dead Politicians in the Trunk of My Car, which references by name each candidate and the ghastly ways that they were to be, for whatever reason, dismembered. When Rebellious Knowledge finally finished its first album, which we titled Mind Kick, Paul and I painstakingly assembled an inlay card and walked to the local newsstand, Cards and Stationery, to make photocopies. The employee at the counter in charge of the Xerox machine was a high school kid a few years older than us who, upon studying our homemade J-card, instantly began making sport of us and our rap group. Hey, Melanie, he called to another employee. Come meet wits and words here. They're rappers. Undaunted, we returned to the basement with our Xeroxed cover art and immediately began conceptualizing our next album. 
You know, the kid at the Xerox machine clowned us a bit, sure. But even at this early stage, Paul and I understood that there would always be those for whom the creative ambition in others was a thing to be mocked and ridiculed, and that the scorn of these people wouldn't discourage us. On the contrary, to earn such derision was a badge of honor, proof that you were doing something right. Of course, not all of the negative feedback we faced was verbal. One day, after enjoying a typically idyllic afternoon of record shopping and tagging city buses with our new Magnum markers, I suggested that Paul and I head to the deserted beach to practice our throw-ups. A throw-up is a quickly rendered graffiti piece. On the long concrete wall that served as the unofficial sketch pad for every budding graffiti artist within a three-mile radius. This often promised the risk of run-ins with various tormentors, predators, and rivals. The section of beach where we stood, the neglected bottom of a natural Martian marina that stretched the distance of Highland Boulevard, was condemned. This fact was confirmed by the presence of many fences, which were easily scaled, and various signs that read, Warning! Radiation! which we ignored. The deserted beach was a sort of unofficial playground for any teenager in our neighborhood who sought to temporarily escape the tyranny of the grown-up world. The graffiti of years and even decades past lined every flat surface of rock, like hieroglyphics bearing the iconography of legendary neighborhood vandals, as well as defunct street gangs and long, unfashionable musical groups. There weren't many residences this far down the coast, which meant no adults within shouting distance. For these and other reasons, the beach was perilous territory, even beyond the presence of its radioactivity, the dangers of which none of us kids ever really seriously considered. Rivaled only by the equally unsupervised large section of woods across from Tottenville High School, the beach was the place to find yourself in all kinds of harebrained trouble. Fist fights, drinking and drug taking, arson, foolhardy climbs onto wet high rocks, and, we imagine for some of the older kids, casual sex. It was not uncommon to witness a seagull the size of a large terrier picking at unusual-looking alien fish washed up on the litter-strewn shore. On one previous trip to the beach, my sister Carrie and I set sail into the thick, rust-colored water on giant makeshift vessels made of discarded styrofoam. We made it only about ten feet of sea before inevitably capsizing into the cold, brown, toxic muck. Every once in a while we'd be chased off by cops or truant officers or good Samaritans, but for the most part, the beach was land on which a kind of dystopian juvenocracy prevailed. This was a realm without immediate consequences, like a staging of Lord of the Flies populated with guidos and suburban gangsters. On our previous trip to the beach, Paul and I were ambushed by Greg DeGorgio and his crew, an attack in which I lost my prized Whitesnake t-shirt to a baseball-sized burn hole. DeGorgio and his henchmen had loaded bottle rockets into the shafts of jerry-rigged plastic yellow wiffle-ball bats, rather inventively halved to form small firing cannons, which they then aimed directly at us from a distance of less than 20 feet, launching flaming projectiles at our bodies as we retreated in terror. But that was mere mischief compared to what we were about to confront, for almost immediately after arriving at the beach, I heard four words that caused my blood to run cold. Kick a rhyme, toth. I'd heard these words before, and I knew what I did next would ultimately determine whether or not I was going to get my ass kicked. Of course, I might get my ass kicked anyway. A month earlier, 
I was shoved by these very same hoods who now surrounded us into the frigid, decorative water fountain outside the Golden Dove Diner. Paul had fared somewhat better that day, merely being relieved of his brand new Baltimore Orioles cap, which was snatched by the group and booted down a sewer grate. By now, I understood that the Hood Squad, despite their uncontested role as our neighborhood's dominant white gang of vicious 'er ne'er-do-wells, was a relatively easy audience to please. When coerced into performing raps for this junior mafia of thugs, I had learned to recite only pre-written and well-memorized material to keep my verses relatively short and to add in a few perfunctory local references to our shared neighborhood and its denizens. One time I inserted into a rhyme the name of our high school's most despised security guard by replacing every instance of my use of the phrase whack MC with variations on the phrase punk-ass Officer Walsh. And judging by the response from these hoods, you'd have thought that I'd turned water into malt liquor right before their eyes. Now these dudes were mean, but they were also stupid. If you simply appealed to their vanity, you'd likely escape from an encounter with them unscathed, even if somewhat humiliated. Despite the customary braggadocio that populated our raps, Paul and I were not tough kids, at least not in any traditional sense. The only fights we ever really won were against each other during our periodic fraternal squabbles, in which we seemed to take turns winning and losing the fights. Whenever forced into an actual confrontation, we typically found ourselves ultimately crouched into a fetal position on some fucking train station platform, basketball court, or parking lot, trying to avoid the fists and work boots of our attacker and, always and invariably, his friends. The members of the Hood Squad took a kind of malevolent pleasure in hearing us rap. For one thing, white rappers were still a novelty. I mean, we had third base, but Eminem was still several years away. And although most of the Hoods were in their parochial way very pointedly racist, they all enjoyed rap music and fancied themselves discerning critics of the form. The Hood Squad was also dimly aware that Paul and I had somehow won the favor of the various older rap crews at our school, a fact that seemed to confirm for them our talents on the mic, at least to some degree. This is not to say that the gang's demands for our impromptu raps were designed to encourage our fledgling talents, or that they were issued in the spirit of coaching, or tough love, or even neighborhood pride. On the contrary, these demands were intended to hector and humiliate, to remind us that they were the royalty and we were the court jesters, and that if our work displeased them, they'd resort to drastic measures to register their complaints. Under pressure, I recited a verse I had recently memorized, observing the now familiar reaction to every second and fourth line. Heads began to nod, visages morphed from slack-jawed scowls of hostility to unself-conscious grins, and glances were exchanged among some of the pack's lesser members, seeking consensus. I was a freestyle fanatic till I picked up the pen at the age of nine. I was burning grown men, serving MCs like Severin. Simply put, I'm better than, like anthrax flashbacks. I even spooked the veterans. As I rapped, the gang's unofficial leader, Turk, motioned to the other hoods and pointed at me as if to say, how about this fucking guy? My own aggressive pantomime felt foolish and cheap in front of these eight bigger dudes, who undoubtedly shared my awareness that they outranked me in every possible evolutionary category except intelligence. Aight, aight, that was aight, said Turk when I completed my verse, which is how I knew it was great. I felt relieved, then validated, 
then instantly ashamed for allowing myself to feel validated by such assholes. Let's hear your shit now, Paul, said Turk, turning to my bosom companion and partner in rap. At this, my relief was replaced by a pang of anxiety that skittered across my chest. This is because Paul had recently made the decision to exclusively freestyle all of his raps, improvising off the dome with no pre-prepared bits. These sort of purest aspirations were consistent with Paul's nobility, as well as his stubbornness, two qualities that I, as his best friend, knew all too well. For some time, my private suspicion had been that Paul had adopted this crusade, that improvising lyrics on the spot was the true essence of the art form, and that rapping pre-written, memorized verses in a cipher setting like we were in now was dishonest and fraudulent, as a way of putting me in my place. I was terrible at freestyling, and Paul was great at it. Still, I was hoping Paul wouldn't attempt to use this life-or-death situation to take some kind of artistic stand. All he had to do was rap a few bars, throw in something about one of the local bodegas or something, and we might make it off the beach without bruised ribs and smashed noses. First, Paul tried his best to deflect, waving his hand in mock humility and grinning, knowing all the while this was not a group so easily appeased. Nah, man, Paul demurred. I don't have anything new right now. I cringed. We tried this tactic once before during a previous altercation, and it hadn't worked. The hoods merely demanded we deliver an older verse. Kick something old then, you herb, said another member of the crew right on cue. In a final, pitiful act of desperation, Paul made a move to cross the barrier of hooded, screw-faced dudes, but found his path blocked. I began to sweat. Don't walk away when I'm talking to you, Turk scolded, suddenly threatening. All right, all right, said Paul, feigning confidence. I'll drop some real shit on you. Paul began to rap. A fucking freestyle. I stared at him with searing hatred. He was going to get us killed. Why did he insist on freestyling? It was like showing up to an open mic night to perform stand-up comedy without having prepared a single joke. An admirable conceit, but a reckless one, especially if you knew your audience was just looking for an excuse to knock out a few of your teeth. Now, as I said, Paul was a gifted rap improviser, able to conjure imagery and clever metaphors in nanoseconds. This is a talent I greatly admired and privately envied. But today he was letting his fear get the best of him, beginning every other line with the same mundane, conspicuous stock phrase in an attempt to buy time. Cause I'm telling you something. Over and over again. Cause I'm telling you something. Smelling blood in the water, the hoods reacted instinctively to this gaff. Frankie Gallo stepped forward and took a wide, open-handed swipe across the top of Paul's head, sending his fitted Indiana Pacers cap spinning onto the sand. If Paul's concentration wasn't already broken, it was now. The hoods had identified a moment of weakness and were poised to seize on it. One of the gang cocked back and then released his arm as if to throw a punch, but stopped inches short of Paul's forehead, faking him out. Maybe they wouldn't kick our asses after all, I thought. Somehow, despite all this distraction, Paul kept rapping. "'Cause I'm telling you something,' interrupted John Pazzo, mocking. His concentration now irreparably shattered, Paul stopped rapping. "'Cause I'm telling you something,' repeated another member of the group, laughing. "'That was a freestyle, man,' explained Paul in his defense, trying to retain some self-respect. "'You do better.' "'Wrong move.' "'What? What?' hollered Turk. 
I have noticed over time in advance of a fistfight, many people seem to suddenly experience temporary hearing loss. Who are you talking to, you fucking punk? The hood squad was upon him in a flash. Al Castillo grabbed me from behind to prevent me from intervening, but he shouldn't have bothered. I possessed neither the courage nor the necessary skills to jump into a certain ass-beating out of loyalty to my pal. Paul and I would have certainly lost even a fair fight, which was unheard of, against any of these bigger guys, all of whom openly carried weapons. I watched in terror as the members of the Hood Squad knocked Paul down and encircled him like a wake of vultures, kicking and punching and stomping. The agitated sand kicked up from the blows formed a cloud of dust, like the kind a cartoonist might draw to depict small animals in vicious combat. I remember imagining it was not sand rising from Paul's battered body as it absorbed countless blows, but smoke. They were going to kill him. Helplessly, my mind raced. How would I get Paul to the hospital? The nearest payphone was at least a half a mile away. And who would I call? Fucking cops? Could I carry Paul if I had to? Would I? How was I going to explain to Paul's mom that I stood by and watched him get murdered? The hoods hammered on Paul for what seemed like minutes, and then backed away casually. Now because this was violence enacted not out of vengeance or anger or bruised honor, but as a display of pure Darwinian dominance, there was no reason for the gang to continue the thrashing once the point had been made. They had no particular beef with us, per se. They merely felt duty-bound to remind us who was in charge, and today was Paul's day. One of the hoods chucked Paul's fallen cap into the nearby water. After issuing some vague threats in my general direction, the group dispersed, leaving Paul a crumpled heap on the ground, covered in dirt and specks of wet sand. His face pointed away from me, but I could see that his cheek was pink and swollen. Once the gang was out of sight and we were alone, Paul stood up and brushed himself off as casually as a man in a tuxedo who just noticed a few breadcrumbs on his cummerbund. He looked at me with an expression not so much embarrassed as conspiratorial, and I could instantly tell that he was not angry at me for not jumping into the fracas, and I was no longer angry at him for his stupid freestyle. Are you okay? I asked. I think so, Paul said, surveying himself. Those dickheads were huddled so close together, they were mostly just kicking each other's shins. This was a way of saving face. The hood squad had landed as many blows as they missed. Guess I took a few lumps today, said Paul courageously, straining to smile. Let's get the fuck out of here. You still owe me a quarter drink from before. I didn't recall owing Paul a quarter drink from before. Before what? But it didn't matter. Just moments ago, I watched a gang of the most vicious troglodytes in our neighborhood pound him, and he weathered the attack heroically. I tried to conceal my awe. Paul had Timberland boot prints on the back of his hoodie, and yet was the very picture of dignity, of survival, of perseverance. It was the toughest thing I had ever seen. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. On the next episode, I'll tell you all about how Paul broke my nose over a rap tape. Also, my role as the shittiest and least talented graffiti artist on Staten Island. Till then, this is The Toth Zone.